0: Welcome to the Comics Asylum Podcast, where we explore the world of comic books, movies, television, and pop culture in general. My name is Steve Bino, and this week I'm joined by Joe Pearson to chat about his new book, Pearl Jam Art of Do the Evolution. Welcome to the Comics Asylum Podcast. I'm here with Joe Pearson, um, former child actor, I've just found out, writer now with a new book out, and the president of Epoch Inc. Animation and I'd like to welcome him to the asylum. How are you doing, Joe?
1: I'm doing great. Thanks for having me on. I appreciate the publicity and the interest in the book. Great, great. Before we talk
0: about um, the animation book, I'd like you to tell me a little bit about how you got started in animation, as well as your company.
1: Wow, it's a long story, but uh, basically I was an art major and a history major, which that helped a lot when we actually made this video for Pearl Jam. But I was working as an illustrator in the early 80s late 70s and my friends were getting hired at studios like Disney and Formation and other places and really getting great pay union benefits and they were kind of being trained on the job to be better artists and working with better artists. So I could see their work expanding exponentially and they had health insurance which I didn't have as a freelance illustrator. So I retrofitted my portfolio, uh, took some layout classes from some Disney artists and was hired about a year later as a layout artist at DIC, DIC studios in 1983, which once I got into the business, then you make friends, you do good work, and you just keep expanding. But I realized by the mid nineties that what I really liked doing was writing, producing and, and directing my own material. So I, learned to become a producer by watching the great producers I worked with at Disney and elsewhere and, and open up my studio Epoch Inc in 95. We did a series called space monkeys Mm -hmm. for BKN. We followed that up with the Roswell conspiracies again for the BKN. And in the middle of that, we did the Pearl Jam video. So we've been an animation studio for 25 years now. We did a feature film with partners. I. I teamed up with in Malaysia uh, about six years ago called War of the World's Goliath, which was an independent anime feature. And we're doing shorts right now, pilots and pitching projects to the new networks.
0: Excellent. And I'm going to take a little bit from Todd McFarlane's uh, intro in the book. Yeah. So how did you end up working with Todd McFarlane and Eddie Vedder?
1: Yeah, that's an amazing story. I do detail it in the book, but I'll, I'll give the, the secret out now. Basically, uh, Todd was producing on Spawn, the animated series. And Eddie liked that so much. He, basically, he, Eddie didn't want to do a lot, another live action music video. It had been five or six years since his last one. And I believe the quote was, I don't want to be a trained monkey in front of a camera on a soundstage all day. So he was looking for a way to fulfill his contract to do another music video for Sony. And he came up with the idea of doing it in animation. That way he doesn't have to be on camera all day on a soundstage like a trained monkey. So he reached out to Todd. He was a big fan of of Spawn, the animated series. He thought uh, that style could match well with Do the Evolution. And um, the thing is, Todd is 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 a, Superb comic book artist, a great writer, an amazing businessman. I mean, his toy line alone was revolutionary. And Spawn the Animated Series was pretty phenomenal. But, you know, he's not an animator. He doesn't have an animation studio of his own. So he approached Frank Parr, who was directing on Spawn, and asked if he could recommend an animation studio to do the music video. And, and Frank's a, a friend and colleague for many years in the trenches, and he recommended myself and Apa Kink. So there
0: you go. And I'm looking at the lineup and it was almost like you guys are the 92 dream team, but for animation to put together quite a lineup to get this video made. Uh, Could you kind of outline some of the people other than yourself and Todd and, and Eddie that were a part of this collective, this amazing collective?
1: Yeah. Um, Well, in all honesty, we were a a dream team. Uh, We had just finished Space Monkeys and a show, Mummies Alive, for Deke and some other projects. And I had a good core team at my studio of of really top artists. When they approached me with this video, uh, you know, Terry Fitzgerald, who was a key contributor to it behind the scenes, as we go into later in the book, he traveled with the band and sat with Eddie every night, showing him our current. FedEx packages of designs and storyboards to get them approved by Eddie. But Terry called me and asked if we could do this, and I thought about it very quickly for a few seconds, and I realized there's a lot of cooks in this soup. If we didn't have a really hardcore director on board who could ramrod this through, and if and <coughs> Eddie weren't cooperative, we couldn't do this in 12 weeks, especially on the, on the budget. So the first person that came to my mind was Kevin Altieri. And Kevin really is the key creative on this video. He was known for his work on Batman. Uh, He had just finished the Gen 13 movie before I got the call from, from Terry. He actually assisted a little bit on that movie. We set him up with the overseas studios. We provided some character design and some creative consulting. And he used our post house for editing on that. So we had a good relationship with Kevin. And Kevin and I at the time were very close friends. So I knew he knew history. I knew he had an ability to write as well as storyboard. He was notorious for taking storyboard and really in the storyboard, rewriting the scripts he would get on his projects. And I watched him do it. It was usually for the better. So I knew he had the confidence and the skills to do this. Plus he knew how to design animation that didn't require massive amounts of labor, You know, using techniques he picked up from studying Miyazaki and, and other animator directors. There's a lot you can do using held cells and overlays and camera movement that don't require constantly moving characters, which on a budget and schedule like ours would have been very hard to do. So Kevin was the keystone and he took a few days to think it over because he knew as well as I did that this would either be a fantastic experience or a clusterfuck. And he jumped on board. I think a lot of it was due to our friendship and his trust in me at the time. And he, he led the team. We had Jim Mitchell, who was a Disney animator, one of my friends who was at Disney that inspired me to get into animation, uh, great designer, storyboard artist. He did all the dinosaur sequences for the film and a lot of other work. Uh, Young Ki Yoon, who was a protege of Peter Chung's that I, I brought in a few years earlier to my studio. He draws like a layout artist from Akira. He was a ph- phenomenal artist and animator. So he did a lot of those edgy, anime style scenes. We had uh, Calvin Lee, a younger Korean artist who actually, to his credit, Kevin jumped up into storyboarding on this. That was one thing about Kevin I really appreciated is that he wasn't afraid to, to recognize talent even if they didn't have the experience directly doing something, he was willing to give them a shot. So he gave Calvin a shot boarding and designing on this and, and he did a great job. Uh, gosh, we had so many, uh, Tina Oliva and my wife Lisa, did the color key. Both of them are experienced animation color key artists. We had a a terrific background painter from DreamWorks who did our background color keys. You know, we had a small, but very dedicated in-house team. And with the time given, we were able to generate the designs and storyboard on this in a very tight, cohesive environment. Plus we had two studios in Korea, which I had done Space Monkeys and was going to do Roswell with. So I knew I could split the job between them and they could each take half of the storyboard and, and bring it to life in, in a month. So it's a long answer to a short question. But-
0: yeah, I, you know, I, I've read the book, I really enjoyed it. Um, I love the layout, the way that you've included the storyboards and the animation cells, as well as you know, you're recounting what happened um, through the process. And what really struck me was how, how tight your deadline was. And then with the deadline being so tight, how you guys were able to work together so well.
1: Yeah. Well, again, we were a small unit. You know, It was Kevin, the three or four in-house artists, and myself. Uh, Kevin and I had a mandate from Todd and, and Terry to do something edgy. I mean, um, Eddie, Eddie, Eddie actually said, you know, he just kind of wanted to do the ultimate stoner video. And we saw the lyrics in, in the video. And also we saw a music video that Todd had produced, that Eddie had produced at his home office on his Avid. He had an Avid next to his bed in his bedroom. An Avid is a huge, highly expensive editing machine but rock stars, you know, can, can get great toys like that. And to his credit, he taught himself how to master this very big and complicated piece of technology. So he gave us a three-minute, four-minute video using cuts from the animated Spawn to the song, Do the Evolution. And that really helped Kevin and I a lot because there was a lot of hard, edgy scenes of people shooting up and guns and Spawn's wife burning in flames and crying out with kind of later-inspired Death Girl. So we had all of that to work on as a basis.
0: Yeah, and it's amazing how... Looking at the video again, it's it's kind of hard to think that it's been two decades since you guys completed it, and yet it could have been made last year, considering the how topical it still is.
1: Yeah, um, sadly that's true. I mean, I, I mean, Kevin and I both we're not naive about ma- you know mankind and, and our history, but we both want to believe in the innate goodness of people and and the progression of mankind and and always moving upward into a more enlightened and and harmonious state. But the last 20 years since the video, we've had some great times and some really horrible times. I mean, we, under Bush, we entered into a war in Iraq that killed a million men and women and children in Iraq alone, 50 or 60,000 Americans, and gave us $2 trillion in debt. And for what? You know, then again with the virus, we have 210, 250, maybe more really dead Americans due to a federal government that seems unwilling or unable to step up to help the American people in a big way. And at the time we made the video, we had literally no clue that, that our worst expectations would, would continue to pan out. We were trying to make a warning. But here we are in 2020. and... And really, it seems worse than ever. Let's hope the sky clears in a month and we can begin to rebuild once again and try to step up to saving ourselves, saving the planet. I mean, climate change alone, you know, I'm going off on a political rant, But That's all okay. of these are put into the video. And, and I'm an optic, optimistic pessimist. I mean, I, I'd like to believe that man has a chance to, to step up and, and save ourselves and, and the planet we live on, which was really, you know, Eddie's big message in do, writing Do the Evolution was inspired by the book Ishmael by Daniel Quinn, which, which I read about a year ago, ironically. And that book is a plea for man to wake up and realize that we're eating the planet. We're pushing onto 8 billion people Species are being wiped out every day, the oceans are dying, on, on and on, climate change. And, and I think that really inspired, I know that inspired Eddie to, to write that song and, and it indirectly inspired us when we made the video. And I, I like to think that we could figure things out and step up. I, I just have a grandchild and, and I worry about his future. You know? and, and he's one of the lucky ones. He's in the upper curve of the middle class And his parents are educated, sane, intelligent, smart people, they're beautiful people. And he's got a lot of advantages that others won't have, especially in the third world countries and in the lower classes in this country. There's gonna be, you know, there's big issues and we need to try to resolve them or uh, we'll go the way of our video, maybe not with the big nuclear holocaust, but certainly through pandemics and flooding and mass refugee wars. So those are issues we need to address. But I, I would love to make a, an optimistic. Actually, I'd love I'd love to make an optimistic rebuttal to do the evolution. If someone <laughs> wants to give me a couple hundred thousand, no, help. Uh, <laughs> fifty thousand, <000, laughs> it'll be beautiful. Give us a song and fifty thousand dollars, and we'll we'll make a hopefully uh, positive alternative. So what is it about? What is it about? You know,
0: humankind that even though you know what has gone before us, because you can see in the video that it's just this never-ending loop of evolution. You 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 build, you get to a certain point, you're destroyed again. You build, get to a certain point, you're destroyed again. Why is it that we have been unable to, and don't get me wrong, there has been some progress, but why is it that we're unable to break that cycle?
1: yeah. Boy, that's a heavy question to lay on someone. I, you know, Christians would say it's because of original sin. I, I used to believe that. I, I don't believe that anymore. I think if there is a God, he, she, it gave us all the gift of expressing itself in this beautiful world that we're all a part of and is a part of us. In a way, we're all God that way. So we have, we have that potential inside us to, to, to be gods of beauty and light on this planet. And we're born that way. I don't think we're born corrupt or twisted, but what happens is our society and our environments, you know, we, I mean, you look at a three or four year old kid. I mean, my grand, I'm really looking forward to seeing my grandson at that age. He's only about eight months now, but you know, three, two, three, four year old children, they have no little brain going on. the little voice inside their head, second guessing things, angling for how they can scheme something or get ahead or being worried or afraid about the past or the, the future, they're just there. And I think that ability in us, if we could go back to that sort of state of open openness being in the moment, which sounds like such an awful cliche now, but it's a, it's a great concept of, of just being aware all the time of what's around us and what we're doing, you know, and not turning a blind eye to the bad things and being willing to give up things to help others. You know, I think we could... We could get beyond this. You know, what, but I think that's, that little voice inside us is what tends to make us fail. You know, and, and you're also products of your environment. I mean, Donald Trump is a product of a monster sociopath, and he bred someone who is a monster sociopath. And he wasn't born that way. Donald Trump wasn't born a, a person like that. His father helped mold him. I mean, Trump made his own choices, it's A lot of it's on him, but a lot of it's your environment. I mean, people that are born in the inner city that have a choice of either joining a gang or getting the shit beat out of them or getting killed, they're being forced into that. And then they become criminalized and socialized. You know, people born in a third world country where they have no choice but to fight or die. You know, that's, that's a choice that is being forced on them. And I think if we can, beginning at birth, give people a fair, humane... Human upbringing—you know—we can change things. I think that's the big issue. It's nature and nurture, and I think n- nurture really affects us more than nature. I-, I would like to believe that our nature is to be good, godly people.
0: But unfortunately, there are forces that uh, don't allow that to happen all the time.
1: I see it them myself all the time, man. <laughs> 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 Angel, angel and devil on my shoulder all the time and I've got that little voice in my head often yeah. saying hey hey you should have done this back then or you look out you got to do you know this is gonna you know and, and, and a, a big help to me has been Eckhart Tolle he he has a book out called the power of now and um, a spiritual center I go to talk about Eckhart Tolle all the time and, and my therapist talks about him all the time and and his whole point is that we are living often in a in a kind of a sick dream of our own making by living inside our heads, and we need to to, to learn to sit and be present. And then, when we do that, he, he does go spiritual. He says something else beyond our, our own selves will reach out to us as well to to aid us. And I, I would like to believe I like to believe that that rise of spiritualism and and, and human understanding against the rise of war and, and, and population and climate degradation and, and resource depletion. Those are two parallel paths, and, and I don't know which one's going to win.
0: And it's interesting that you said that we kind of live inside of our own head, try to create or construct our own reality. One of the things with COVID that I've noticed is that everyone is b- kind of bringing their own worldview on how to deal with it. So whether it's a mask issue or how the virus actually works or how to, you know, because I'm here in Toronto. So our look at social safety nets are a little bit different than, um, than you guys down south. It's amazing how when you have something like what has happened in 2020 occur, the different reactions that you have in terms of how to bring the society together, how different they can be depending on your own worldview.
1: Yeah. Again, if you're raised, someone did a cartoon in a fanzine years ago. It says, if you, if you, if you live in a trash can, your sky is going to be made of tin. Yeah. <laughs> and that's true. <laughs> and that's, a, that's the nurture thing. When it, you know. So I think we need societies to try to build sane, decent societies where everybody gets an equal chance. I mean, the medical care our president got was wonderful, and, and he, you know the virus could still swing back and impact him in the next few days. We'll see. but he, he had you know, six-figure medical care that most people who get the virus in this country don't get. I mean, the high rate of deaths in this country when people of color, Latinos and blacks, is way out of proportion to the people that are dying percentage-wise in this population. And those people are not getting the kind of care President Trump got. That's just an example. And he is the president, so he should get the best care, but it's an example of our right at, um, you know, during a, a deadly pandemic of the in, inequalities in our system.
0: Right. And I guess, depending on what side of the political aisle you're on, when you see Trump at a lectern, it's kind of like the politician in the video, right? Who is also, um, I guess, referenced also with like the emperors or the priests or the general, like anyone who's in a position of power, they have, I guess, a, a responsibility to look after those who are beneath them, so to speak.
1: Yeah, and, and I mean, it doesn't have to be that way. I, w- I was born in a lower middle class family. My dad was a creator and a writer who, who basically spent all of his money trying to get custody of me in a contested suit with my mom. And he won, but he never recovered financially from that. So we. We grew up living in one room apartments, one bedroom apartments for much of my life. And I was lucky though, because he moved to a very great neighborhood in Sherman Oaks, which had a, a really high standard of living. We lived in, in kind of the, the slums of Sherman Oaks and you know, apartment blocks, but I went to a good school. I got a good education. My father died when I was young, but I was able to get grants. So I, I was in line with a lot of people from the inner city at, at university getting grants and work study because my family was indigent like theirs, and, and that helped put me through school. It gave me a great education. and gave me a, a huge leg up. So I think we can do these things as a society for everybody, black or, or white or brown, who are, are lower class and have economic issues. I mean, I think that's what's great about Joe Biden offering a college, ed- college education to people under a certain income level. I think that's what we need to do if we're going to build this country up. It happens in other developed countries. We can do it here.
0: And I'd like to, because you mentioned your dad was a writer. And in, in, the, uh, in the book, you mentioned that, I guess it, it might have been a dedication when you said, like, I'm finally a writer like my dad. How does it feel to move from the animation side to putting pen to paper and expressing your thoughts that way?
1: Oh, it, it's it's a great feeling. I mean, honestly, I've been writing more over the last uh, twenty years than I've been drawing. I still try to draw every day, design every day. But I, I, I find writing as a career, if you can break in, it's easier money than drawing in some ways, and it, and it and it's just as creative if you're building the the worlds themselves. You know, so I, I like writing. I. I've done a couple of graphic novels that ran in Heavy Metal magazine. Uh, the 24-Hour Man, which Young Yoon illustrated, as a 120-page comic story. When we did War of the Worlds: Goliath, we released about a dozen, 10 to 20-page stories in Heavy Metal magazine, and I wrote, conceptualized a lot of those. I wrote the treatment and co-wrote the script on War of the Worlds: Goliath. So I, I've done a lot of writing, but book book writing. This is the first, and it feels great. I I don't know if I'll ever do another book, but I, I'm i really proud of this one. And, and, I, and I I don't know what lies beyond this world, you know. I'd like to think maybe my dad is out there somewhere going, you know, all right, boy, <laughs> you did it, you know. You it. It's not good that he's not looking. <laughs> you know, the idea of people looking in from the afterlife, it's like, wait a minute you
0: you would think they would probably so, have something this, else to do. We're
1: talking about a lot of stuff, with the book stuff. <laughs> yeah. No, yeah, it's it's yeah, good I'll stuff go, because go, all of this stuff informs yeah, the so book, in-
0: right? <laughs> so, getting to the book, how yeah. how did you in, um, conceptualize it and then get it into the form that it is now coming out through IDW? Well, the
1: truth is is I had A small percentage of the cells and from the video and I had all of the original design materials, all the original storyboards, the model sheets, the uh, color key studies. I had all of that and and they were in several large boxes in my garage for almost 15 years. And it was, I gave a number of them away. I gave a lot to the crew. I've given stuff away to friends and and colleagues in the industry. But you know, I had a box, you know, like that thick of materials and, and it, hurt me to see it sitting there in the garage without anybody being able to appreciate it. And I thought it would be a good way to try to monetize it as well. So I, I was thinking oh, I could do a series of gallery shows on the making of the video and put up a lot of this work in the gallery. Maybe get the band involved and do some charity work through the gallery sales. And then that kind of led me to, well, why don't, why don't I pitch a book on how we made this? could i plug all of this in. Hang out. A I'm shut this off. Sorry. <laughs> no worries. Good timing, Robert. Um, <laughs> no, so I, I, I pitched the idea to Ted Adams at IDW. I had been talking to Ted about different projects, um, and, and I knew Ted had worked for Todd, was working for Todd at the time he made the video. And he loved it. And, I mean, I guess the, the big thing was there were cumulatively, I would guess there's over 100, view, 100 million views of the video on YouTube alone. There were 10 or 20 million, 30 million before. They took all those different sites down about 10 years ago and consolidated into one site. And now, I don't know, there's 50, 60, 70 million views currently. So I knew uh, you know, 100 million people is a big audience. And I thought they would appreciate the video. We could tap into that. We could make some money on the book. And it was approaching the 20 year mark. I thought it would be a good time to, to revisit it. And Ted was all over it. He, he jumped in on it right away to his credit. And Everybody was cooperative. We negotiated a very fair deal with Sony, paid them a moderate amount of money for the rights. Eddie and the band just wanted approval of everything. And, and they've been great. The only, the only thing the band never gave us, which I, I still wish they had, was they would not, Eddie, for some reason, would not let us use Death Girl on the cover of the book. Right. Which right. I'm guessing maybe it's because he felt it was just too commercialized mm-hmm. for his character, but but he agreed to let us use her everywhere else in the book and she's all over the book, you know, we have a whole chapter on her. So I, well, I don't know really why he felt that way, but I think it would have added to the sales potential. And and we're not allowed to do any posters or cross-extra marketing outside of the book itself. But aside from that, Eddie and the band have been wonderful. They took a few months to approve our text and made a few corrections, and and then we were rolling. I mean, one big benefit of doing the book was I had no idea of Terry Fitzgerald's role in this that it was extensive as it was when we made the video. Terry was basically Todd's compadore, you know, at at Todd McFarland Entertainment. And I interfaced with him directly a lot more than I did with Todd. And basically, Terry was tasked with getting approvals on our materials as fast as possible from from Eddie and the band. And we had given them, I think, a 48-hour turnover to approve or comment on everything we sent them as we sent it to them. Because we knew if we didn't get that immediate approval, we would derail and, and blow the deadline. So Terry had kind of the Pearl Jam fans dream. He traveled with the band He was a roadie. He was a roadie, yeah. <laughs> Mouthy New Jersey roadie. <laughs> And he traveled with those guys. So he yeah, what, what a fantastic experience. And he recounts in, in a couple of chapters in the book, uh, he graciously took his time to write all that up and I edited it into the book, his experiences like watching the band from backstage, going to parties with them, and then at like 2 a.m. in the morning, sitting in Eddie's room with the latest FedEx package from Epoch Inc., you know, going over the materials and then listening to Eddie talk about politics and society and and his all of the thoughts that this work brought up to his mind at the time, so we have a lot of pictures of that in the book, a lot of anecdotes about Terry's experiences with Eddie and the band
0: yeah I was just I was amazed at how vast um, the amount of imagery that you were able to put into the book um, and then also when you when you read the book and it's a great read and you look at how you guys were able to use not I guess, shortcuts by making sure that your layouts were so strong that you could use them as storyboards as well, too. Uh, And then it's just a visual treat the way the book's put together. You're actually going back in time and reliving the creative process as you read it. And I, I wonder when you looked at the book for the first time, what kind of feeling did you get when you're looking at it and then actually being there, but then knowing what
1: what, what you went through as you, were, as you were making the video? Wow, that's a great question. Um, in, in no way would I ever compare myself to Sir Paul McCarthy, but he was asked that same question uh, on, on a talk show the other night. And uh, it's like he said in his own head, he, he there's like, there's two Pauls, right? There's like Paul, the, the kid who grew up in Liverpool, lost his mom at an early age, you know, made his friends and, and that's really him. And then there's this other, other Paul that became this super, superstar, you know, mm-hmm. celebrity. And, you know, both these guys coexist and they're the same person, but they're kind of separate. And in a very minor, minor way, because I'm like, <laughs> I'm nowhere near uh, anything at that level. But, but able to, to look at this book, it is kind of weird. It's sort of like Joe Pearson, the fanboy, <laughs> looks at this and just goes, wow. Wow, what did these guys do? You know, this is really fascinating. I, and Joe, the professional, you know, goes, Yeah, this, we, you know, every day we did it. And, you know, we were smart and lucky and had a lot of support. So that's how we did it. But I, yeah, I, I, when I got into animation, in the, about 82, 83, I, I read a bunch of books on, 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 on animated films. And I remember reading um, the making of a, of a movie called Raggedy Ann and Andy by John filmmaker, And it was a nice little movie, you know, not earth-shaking, but a really sweet little independent animated film with a lot of talented artists. And I just I remember reading all of those details of the behind the scenes and the crew and the people and their interaction, and I kind of fell in love with that. Because as an illustrator, i had been working isolated. You sit at your drawing board and and draw or paint and and then bring in your work and then go back to it. It's the same in in comics. You know, comics is a very solitary profession. And it has its great points. You can work in your pajamas, you can work at home. We're all all getting to see how great that can be.
0: Right, yeah. (laughs) Everyone's a freelance comic artist now in uh, 2020.
1: Yeah, Yeah, exactly. (laughs) <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but yeah, so I I I was enthralled reading that book, and I remember working on a small production in the studio in Reseda and, and I I it was like my first chance doing layout, and the next thing I knew, I was running a layout crew, and I brought in a bunch of my friends. And I remember just walking down the street with the gang of guys, like these are my guys, right? We're all like this little team, and, and it was just a wonderful uh, feeling to be doing that. And which is the great thing about animation is you're part of a big of a big machine or a big team, you know, it's almost like fighting a war. You know, that's why directors are kind of like generals. But, but I, I remember those books just inspired me, and I, I think my goal, one of my goals on this book, was to create something that would really go into the details of the creative process and show all of this blood, sweat, and work and camaraderie that can go into making even a short piece like this four-minute music video. And I hope that it inspires young artists who are, you know, studying animation to to reach out and, and really go for the uh, that career in, in, in an excited way.
0: No, it, it is very inspiring, um, especially when you see the bones of something that, you know, got a Grammy nomination. And, oh, yeah. and you just, you're like, as someone who was not part of the process and just absorbed it as part of the, of uh, the public, you never really see how, you know, the um, the meatballs are made or your hamburgers are made, but this is a, a, a bit of a slice into the creative process with, a, with, with some Titans. Right. And the fact that you can collaborate because sometimes it's hard, right? It, it, you guys were able to find a way to guess, shelve your ego and still let your talents shine, which I think is amazing.
1: Yeah, yeah, and, and a lot of that is the atmosphere at Epoch that I tried to foster. We, we had a real family atmosphere. Uh, one time the whole crew got together and on, out of our own pockets, we went up as a group to San Francisco for like a three-day hangout together. This is pre-evolution, um, but a lot of it too is Kevin. Kevin was a great general on this. And again, if anyone deserves the key credit from, for Do the Evolution, it's Kevin Altieri. Because I, I built the machine. I groomed the machine. I, you know, I did the game plan on how to schedule it, you know, where the money would go, what studios would work on it. I ran interference. And I and I did co-write a lot of it with Kevin. I did a few storyboards myself. but But Kevin was the main driving force. I would say... If you look at this, this is a, a cool thing in the book. This like two page spread on each yeah. the inside pages. Those are all of the storyboards. It goes on a loop. So this is probably like a storyboard and a half of the storyboards we did to make this video. And I'm guessing off the top of my head, at least 60% of these were drawn by Kevin himself. Wow. You can see his style. is very distinctive. Yes. And i i think would we have been able to make a good video without kevin probably but it would have been different we might have hit some huge dead ends and i mean with kevin i knew we were guaranteed of of, giving it the best shot we had and i really give him the credit for that he fostered that kind of openness and, and communication i mean i running a studio at one point we had 40 We were down to like a small crew and we did evolution. But at one point, I had like 40 people working in house, and then two or three hundred people in Korea working on on space monkeys. And you tend to kind of pigeonhole people. You know, animation is very much a specialty profession. There's character designers, background designers, layout artists. It's a cat, sorry. No worries. Running a muck She gets up here, but um, she can't get through the screen. And she'll try. <laughs> yeah, it's a specialty occupation, and and I think it's easy as a producer. It's less work to say, okay, this is your job. Do it. Just do it. But um, I I did try at times to get people, you know, to move people up from storyboard cleanup to storyboarding to to design. But Kevin, uh, it really surprised me in his openness to do that. He was really willing and open to letting different people do different things. So Brad Coombs, our designer, who did such a brilliant job designing Death Girl. And, and, and you can see his work in there. It's all the work that looks very uh, Batman-like. Yes, yeah. So, I mean, Brad's a brilliant guy, but he was heavily influenced by Batman and Bruce Tim, Bruce Tim for yeah. sure. The,
0: the, the, you can see the DNA from uh, Harley Quinn to Death Girl.
1: Oh yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, he, he designed a lot of that stuff, but he also storyboarded a bunch of it under Kevin's guidance, you know, and the same with Young Yoon. He designed the baby making machine and storyboarded that whole sequence. Right. Jim Mitchell designed all of the dinosaurs and big fish eating little fish and the shark eating the fish and getting eaten by the T-Rex. That was all designed by Jim who has a real affinity for for animals and, and animal studies, and he's a scuba diver, so he knew his underwater stuff. But he designed all of that, and he boarded it at the same time. So that, that was kind of unique. In, in animation, you generally will have someone design the characters, and then someone else will board the product. But because we had such a small crew, and Kevin was so um, flexible and open to letting people uh, do more than just their allotted uh, job skill, we, we crossed that line a lot. I tried to detail that in the book.
0: No, no, it's good. The the book is is very comprehensive. Um, And what I really liked about it as well, too, is that the individual members of your group all had a chance to kind of, you know, give some insight into the inner workings of their portion or their perception of how the entire process went out as well as dealing with their interactions with Todd and with Eddie.
1: Yeah. Yeah, that was amazing because I detail Brad Coombs, the Death Girl designer, uh, about two months after we finished the video. um, Well, while we were making the video, uh, he and his band, which was a really tight rock band, they used to practice once a week at at Epoch Inc. in our big warehouse space. And uh, one night they were gearing up to come in to practice, and they didn't know it, but Eddie and Todd were in our conference room looking at storyboards for the video. So we invited them in, and, and it just blew their minds Because they were huge, huge Pearl Jam fans. But then two months after the video was made, uh, because of insurance reasons, I had to ask Brad and the band to, to, to move their practice outside of the studio. And they had moved to a nearby rental space once a week or twice a week for their, their jams. Um, hang on one second. Hang on one sure. second. My, my cat was just about to escape the window here.
0: Ah.
1: Would have been not a good thing. Hey, Willow, you little darling.
0: The yeah. emancipation of Willow.
1: That's my wife's worst dream here. So I don't think I heard her when I grabbed her. You okay? All oh, right, she's a good <laughs> children. Uh-huh. So... So they were, they were practicing in this little warehouse space and literally there's a tap on the door and the, the bass player comes to the door and he looks out and he goes, guys, it's, it's Eddie and Tim Robbins. And they're like, ha, all right, man, sure. And it was, it was Eddie <laughs> and Tim. They've been driving around the industrial space in Santa Monica for some reason, probably near Tim's house. And they heard the band playing and the band was so tight and so good they thought, hey, let's, let's see if they'll jam with us. So they showed up with a bunch of beer and food and said, hey, can we jam with you guys? So they jammed together for two, three, four hours, which That's amazing. is a fan's dream, right? And uh, uh, Brad, I didn't know he could write that well. <laughs> you know, I guess he is really multi-talented. He wrote a, a beautiful chapter, which we put in the book, about his experience with Eddie and him and, and the band. So... Yeah, it's funny. It's a funny, um, I mean, the world's full of that, right? These weird synchronicities, you know, and, which makes it really a great experience most of the time. Yes, for sure, for sure. Now,
0: I want to get back to your writing just a little bit. Yeah. You said that you're not sure if you would do anything like um, the art book again, do the evolution. Would you or are you planning to do any comic book? writing in the future
1: oh man that's a good question i'm not a young guy anymore i, I know i look young but i'm actually pretty <laughs> old i'm joking <laughs> i old uh i'm semi-retired but i i because i don't need to to work to make a living now um but i love creating and world building that's like uh it's nothing I want to stop doing. So I have a a number of creative projects and I've been trying to focus on which one to target and which one to do. And mostly I've been developing, spending my time uh, turning them into animated animation scripts or pitch decks or Bibles. And we're gearing up to take a couple of them out to the networks to see if we can get that going. So I have been sublimating most of my writing into into that. And I love comics. I think comics I grew up reading comics. i I bought the first issue of Fantastic Four on the newsstand.
0: Wow. Okay. Yeah.
1: Okay. Yeah. Oh, yeah, thank you. Respect.
0: <laughs> I'm not worthy. Well yeah. done. <laughs>
1: <laughs> <laughs> I'm old. I mean, I bought Jack Kirby Monster comics before that, you know? Oh, like, that's amazing. Yeah. So I mean I I love comics, especially Marvel. Marvel Really affected me in, in more than the DC universe for the most part but i I think it''s it's, the audiences are wonderful and, and dedicated but they're small and mm-hmm. and the monetary rewards aren't great so I feel like as long as I have access to bigger media, bigger money bigger audiences and bigger and, that, and my skill set is as a producer and a director and a writer that I, I'm you know, going to go. For the bigger ring, we'll see. You know, I, I I have a children's book that I've been working on that uh, I would really love to to finish. Um, there's a, an artist, uh, Von Bodie's son, Mark Bodie. I don't know if you're familiar with Von and his work. Um, not too, not too much. He, he was kind of the guy who created the, the whole graffiti art style with those big big doe shaped faced women. Oh, okay. And, uh, the, the yellow hat with the red feet, the wizard hat, the right? Bon, bon was the biggest influence on me as an artist. He was an underground genius up, up there with Crumb and Rick Griffin and a few mm. of those. And his son, Mark, writes, draws just like his dad. He's, he's really got that style down. And I, I, he doesn't even know about this, but I've been working on this kid's book for a while. And if I can get it, all of the writing done and locked in, I, I'm going to commission Mark. I'm going to pencil it and then give him. Have him do the finishes but we'll see if we can get that it, it's a very uh, uh, it's kind of about yeah anyway it, that that's a whole different thing and, and but that's something I would like to do but yeah comics anything I do I would like to put out into comics at some point and novelizations I've got a really good novelizer who novelized my War of the Worlds Goliath movie Adam Adam Whitman. she's a terrific writer and I, I I'm kind of waiting until after the election to see where things fall and things settle down and we go back into a more sane time. I I might venture a Kickstarter for one of these projects, which would be to, to develop one of these IPs as a multimedia world do a comic, do an animated trailer, do a novelization and, and, you know, run with all three of those tracks at once.
0: And now's the time because, you know, the avenues for having a cross-platform type of IP are there, and you have the networks that are open to ideas, right? So it's not that much of a closed loop anymore.
1: Yeah, in theory, I, I, you know, I've been independent for so many years in animation. Um, after we finished Roswell Conspiracy, was, uh, Kevin Eastman and I spent like five, six years together trying to raise money for a slate of heavy metal-based movies. I wrote the business plan and, and we, I'd love to write a book on that experience actually, because it was insane the the, the, the interesting and sometimes dodgy characters we were dealing with who wanted to invest in this, you know, and the things that happened. And at the end of the day, we did raise money for war of the world's Goliath, but uh, I pretty much make doing that and making Goliath over three or four years, put me out of the industry. So I, don't have an agent. I don't have an, actually an easy way back in. So we're seeing on this one IP we have out there, if we can actually get into the past, the gatekeepers to the executives that make decisions.
0: Right. So Joe, I just want to say that this has been a pleasure. Um, I had a fantastic time talking about Pearl Jam, the art of do the evolution. Um, anytime you want to come back and chat and that, that um, the last project that you spoke about, the heavy metal one, with Eastman, I would love to read a book about that.
1: Oh, yeah, thank you. Um, I'm, I'm thinking about it. So a lot of mea culpa is in there, I think. But one, one last thing. Yeah, for I get, sure. I want to give a shout out to the guy who designed the book, Robbie Robbins. Um, he was at IDW uh, for many, many years, and, and this is being published by IDW. But Robbie did something on this book that that I think is really unique. You know, he, he did what I call a fully kind of deconstructed approach.
0: Yes. Yeah.
1: On the layout the presentation. I mean, it's almost an over... When you read it, let me ask you a question. Were you... Was it too much? Was it hard for you to read and track on things because of the... Show? No, or, it wasn't
0: for me. Uh, I was able to read it on PDF as a PDF. But what I was... It, because I, I like drawing and I like design. I was also... I'd read what you'd written. And then I'd be looking at, oh look, he used um, crinkled paper and Scotch tape as a design element to stitch together the writing and the cells. Like, like the the design of this book is it's on point.
1: I, I loved it. Yeah, here's a good here's a good example mm-hmm.
0: exactly yes.
1: Sure. Yeah, it's I kind of call it deconstructed, and, and actually it's very to me it feels very rock and roll kind of mm-hmm. thing, you know very uh it's very it's strong.
0: edgy it's edgy like you know it's exactly it what what you guys are trying to do
1: yeah so i, I mean it, uh, his design and the way he pulled the images that i gave him together and, and put them into the presentation is at least as much a part of the book as my writing and i, I want to give rodby a lot of credit for that
0: no, it was, uh, it, it, was a, it was a fun read, and, I, and anyone who's, uh, who's listening, I recommend that you uh, go pick it up. And uh, I'm assuming that's going to be at any bookstore as well as any local comic shop. All right, so yeah. thank you very much. Uh, Joe, sorry, you had something to say?
1: No, I just thank you for your time. I, I, this interview took some unexpected turns in terms of talking about uh, philosophy and politics and... and you know, mankind. I I didn't expect that, but I, I, I enjoyed the conversation. Thank you. As
0: did I, 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 you know what, if we had more time, I would love to talk to you about the history, like, because you're a history buff as am I. So, you know, maybe for another call for sure.
1: All right. Well, take care. And and I think
0: we'll talk again. Absolutely. We will. You take care. It was great. All right. All right. Bye-bye. Thanks for listening, everyone. And once again, a special thank you to Joe Pearson. We look forward to your comments, so reach out to us on Facebook and at Comics Asylum on Instagram and Twitter.